Hello, everyone. Welcome to Teaching Matters. This program is produced and recorded in the studios of WOUB Public Media in Athens, Ohio. I'm your host, Scott Titsworth, Dean of the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The National Teacher of the Year program is the oldest and most prestigious honors program focusing attention on teaching excellence. Candidates for the National Teacher of the Year must be selected as a State Teacher of the Year and also demonstrate excellence in the classroom, leadership, collaboration, and the ability to effectively express their personal stories about teaching. This episode of Teaching Matters is the first in a series of programs discussing teaching effectiveness with Teachers of the Year Award recipients. My guest for this episode is Sydney Chafee, a humanities teacher at Codman Academy Charter Public School in Boston, Massachusetts. Sydney was selected as the 2017 Massachusetts Teacher of the Year and was then selected as the 2017 National Teacher of the Year by the Council of Chief State School Officers. Sydney is a National Board Certified Teacher and received her bachelor's degree from Sarah Lawrence College and her master's degree from Lesley University. Before starting our discussion with Sydney, we begin with a short audio clip where Sydney discusses her teaching epiphany. That clip was produced by NWEA, who partners with the CCSCO on the National Teacher of the Year program. More information about both organizations, as well as links to the Teacher of the Year audio clips from NWEA, are provided in the text accompanying this podcast. I am Sydney Chafee. I'm the 2017 Massachusetts Teacher of the Year and the 2017 National Teacher of the Year. So when I was named National Teacher of the Year, I felt this great pressure to do it right and to represent teachers in exactly the perfect way and to live up to this title that I'd been given. I wanted to show everyone that they hadn't made a mistake in selecting me and that I could do this work justice. And I had this fear of going into an interview or an event and being asked a question that stopped me in my tracks, a question to which I had no answer, and of becoming a meme or somehow becoming um, a symbol of everything that was, that was wrong with teaching. So I got invited to go to Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, and spend a week there talking to teachers and working with students. And there was an event that I had to go to where there was supposed to be a big audience and we were going to show a video and do a Q&A about teaching in America. And there was this expectation that I would be able to speak on behalf of America and really talk about all of the things that made American education great. So I walk into this vast auditorium with chairs stretching all the way back and big columns and a stage and a microphone and I look out onto the audience and there are five people there. And so I begin my my speech and we start taking questions and answers and a few more people start to trickle in, but it's a pretty small crowd and I'm doing my best to tell them the things that I do in America and the things that I think are great about teaching and share with them some techniques that have worked with my students. And I'm starting to feel disheartened because they seem interested in the ideas and they seem curious about them, But they're saying things to me like, well, that sounds great, but I have 60 students in my class. Or, well, that activity sounds like it would be really fun if my desks weren't bolted to the floor. So I'm I'm feeling like this is not necessarily going super well. And then this man raises his hand and he says, what is the purpose of learning? And I had no idea how to answer that question. I had absolutely nothing. And so I did this sort of, you know, 
mental tap dance of trying to figure out how I was going to answer this question. And I think I turned it back to the audience and I had them answer it. And I left feeling like I had, I had really blown it. I had messed up this opportunity. And, and how could I, the National Teacher of the Year, not have an answer to this really profound but sort of simple question, what's the purpose of learning? And I went back to my hotel room and I was thinking and thinking and sort of beating myself up over it. And I thought back to the other thing that I had done that day, which was to go to a high school and to teach a theater class to a bunch of kids in Ethiopia. And in teaching that class, all of the differences that seemingly existed between us because we were from different countries, different continents, we spoke different languages, all of those differences were flattened by education. All of those differences were flattened by this lesson that we did together, by the poem that we looked at together, by the theater exercises that we did, by the laughter that we shared. And so I realized that you could have a lot of different answers to this question, what's the purpose of learning? You could ask 20 teachers and get 20 different answers, but for me, one really important purpose of learning is connection, is connecting with other human beings on the basis of our shared humanity. And if we can do that, if learning can lead us to that kind of connection, then it's okay if we don't have all the answers. It's okay if we don't know everything, if we're not the utmost expert, because when we connect with each other, we can figure it out and we can work together to make amazing things happen for kids. So that's what I learned in Ethiopia. And that was my most profound moment of learning so far as Teacher of the Year. Sydney, welcome to Teaching Matters. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So when I was reading the nomination materials that you submitted for your National Teacher of the Year application, one of the things that struck me is that you have a very deep sense of social justice and responsibility that guides sort of what you do as an educator. Is that is that a fair way of describing your educational philosophy? And, and I guess more importantly, what led you to be drawn to that? Yeah, I think it's fair to describe my philosophy that way. Um, I have been lucky to work at a school where social justice is centered in our curriculum and then also just sort of our, our values as a school and what we try to do with kids. Um, and so I've really grown up there as a teacher. I've taught there for 10 years um, at Codman Academy in Boston. And so I've learned a lot about what social justice is and what teaching towards social justice looks like. And, um, and so that's really where a lot of those ideas have come from. So you mentioned, of course, that you teach at Codman Academy, but of course, you know, you're part of an, a larger national landscape that focuses on student learning outcomes and standards. So as, as a practical matter, when you're teaching using a social justice perspective, you have to figure out how to align your pedagogical philosophy with sort of external standards that are placed upon all educators. What are some ways that you do that so that you're able to demonstrate student learning in ways that can be articulated with meaning to sort of the external um, forces that, that guide our work? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that these things are not opposed to one another. They actually work together really beautifully. So um, I design all of my curricula and all of my lessons using backwards planning, starting from the Massachusetts state frameworks, uh, the common core, basically. Um, and so I start with the same standards as teachers all over the state who might not necessarily be teaching in the same kind of school that I am or teaching the same kind of class, but ultimately we're holding kids to the same kinds of standards um, and we're aiming for the same goals in terms of student learning. Uh, and 
having a class that's infused with social justice or that's driven by those um, by those sort of topics, it means that the way that I'm helping students master the skills and the content and the standards is super relevant and engaging for them. So we're doing a lot of work in figuring out how to get students to be stronger readers and stronger writers and better analysts of history and things like that. And we're doing all of that in a way that looks at these historic topics of uh, justice and injustice, which is really engaging for kids. And I, I know I'm going to ask some questions a little bit later for specific examples of, of uh, projects and assignments that you do. But when you use the word social justice, what, are, what does that mean to you, um, just to sort of put that in context for the listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So when I think about social justice, I just think about this idea that all of the people in a society deserve access to resources, deserve Uh, fair and equitable rights and opportunities. And any work that we're doing that's driving us towards a society that looks like that is social justice work. So, um, you know, in my class, we're talking about we're talking about moments in history where people were not living in just societies or where their governments did not treat them in just ways or where they didn't have equal rights and opportunities and access to resources. And then we're talking about, well, what work did they do to try to address that? And that's the kind of work that I think comes to mind for me when we think about social justice work. Mm-hmm. Very good. Um, before we get into some of the details of, of how you teach and, and, and the ways that you go about doing that, can you describe a little bit about Codman Academy and, and specifically the student population that you're serving? Yeah. Uh, Codman is a great school. We are in the Dorchester neighborhood of Boston, right in the city. Um, and our school is tiny. It's a little charter school. And in grades K through eight, we have about 350 kids, I believe. It's about 145 in the high school, grades nine to 12. Um, and our kids are amazing people. They are coming from some of them in the in the high school have come up now through our own middle school, which we just expanded to a K to 12 in the last few years. But a lot of the other kids, they're coming from schools all over Boston. Um, and there's a really wide range of sort of the types of learners that we have and where they're coming from and who they are. A lot of diversity in terms of how kids learn and Um, and what they sort of come in with, which is really, really great for me as a teacher to have really diverse classrooms of students and thinkers in that way. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of our kids, I believe about 98% of our kids are kids of color. Um, And yeah, we have sort of growing numbers of kids who are English language learners, um, although our numbers there are still smaller than the Boston Public Schools District. Um, And we have uh, I believe anywhere from 20 to 25% of our students um, are on IEPs or have IEPs in any given year. Mm-hmm. And, and and just out of curiosity, how many other uh, faculty are at Codman besides yourself approximately? Oh, that's a good question because we have expanded in the last few years. And so we went from being small enough where our entire staff could have a, a staff meeting in one classroom to now having to do it in a really big sort of theater space. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of teachers, I would say in the high school, there are maybe 15 to 20 teachers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Good. So let's let's turn to talking about your nomination packet for the National Teacher of the Year program. In that packet, which was you know very extensive, and I enjoyed reading it, you you described one of the activities that you've used, which was a collaboration with Boston's Huntington Theater Company, and that explored the topic of justice and injustice. Can you describe? You've already talked in in general terms about what you perceive social justice to be, but can you go into some detail on talking about that collaboration with Huntington Theater? Sure. I've been super lucky to get to have that partnership, which predates me at the school. Um, So the Huntington Theater Partnership has existed since the very beginning of the school. And the ninth and 10th graders at our school all get to work with theater educators from the Huntington to put on performances throughout their ninth and 10th grade year. And my class is ninth grade humanities. So the title of my class is Justice and Injustice, which means the work that we do with the Huntington it weaves in with that justice and injustice content that that is the center of my entire class, the driving force of my class. So um, in the ninth grade, we start out by having students participate in this national poetry recitation competition called Poetry Out Loud. And that's sort of our warm up. It's our way of introducing them to some of the concepts of what happens in theater work. Um, and it's, it's our way of getting them all up on the stage in front of an audience, many of them for the first time in their lives at the beginning of their ninth grade year. So actually the kids who are currently in ninth grade, and I'm not teaching them this year, but I know this, their performance is tomorrow, tomorrow night. Um, There's a lot of nervous energy right now. (laughs) And then at the end of the year, we have them put on a play. Um, And so for the last five or six years, the play has been set during South African apartheid, which is one of the case studies that we do in ninth grade humanities to look at justice and injustice. So working with the Huntington and helping them put on a play that's set during apartheid, it really reinforces the students learning about that moment in history and how it impacted the people, which is amazing. I can see students really deepening their understanding of that history as they embody these characters. And the theater work also helps kids build their literacy skills. So you can imagine having to memorize a poem and recite it for an audience means that you have to develop a pretty deep understanding of that that well. So it's an incredible partnership. I've grown so much as a teacher by learning from the Huntington Theater's educators. Um, and I, it's, it's just a really unique and awesome experience, I think, for the kids to be a part of. You know, we, we've had um, other guests on the podcast who've talked about uh, the topic of theater of the oppressed and how that has pedagogical applications. And we also recently had a guest from Connecticut who talked about place-based education. It sounds like you're wrapping all of that into this project with the theater company in a really meaningful way that also taps into social justice. And um, is, do you do you do other things with the arts in your in your pedagogical practices like theater? Um, do you use other types of artistic forms in addition to that at all? Uh, you know, I try to, and I'm trying to build that part of my practice a little bit more because when I was in school, art class was my safe haven. Yeah. Anytime I got to do creative writing or art or music, that was that was a place where I felt really, really happy and safe and um, that I was able to express myself. And so I know how powerful that can be for kids. And so I'm thinking about how I get more of that happening in my class. The theater partnership is incredible. Um, and there's so much room there for us to do really great and transformative work with kids. But last year I tried to... Um, 
I tried to put together a little literary magazine, just a one shot thing, just to sort of test the water and see whether that's something that kids would respond to at the school. And that went really well. And so that's something that when I return to the school next year, I want to continue trying to put effort into. Um, and I've also built into my class, um, we do sort of project-based learning. And so I've built a project into my class around um, redesigning the Puerto Rican flag. So the students learn about the history of Puerto Rico and the United States and what that relationship has looked like. And, you know, what, what does it mean that Puerto Rico is considered a territory or a commonwealth of the U.S.? And so we look at all of that history and all of that context, and then we look at, well, what are all of the different ways that this relationship between the U.S. and Puerto Rico could look? What are all of the different options? And then kids write persuasive essays on which relationship they think the U.S. and Puerto Rico should have. And then I built in recently in the last few years a project where they then will paint, they design and paint their own flag to represent hmm. Puerto Rico's relationship. So that was another way of me just sort of figuring out how can I dabble in some of the arts and give students space to express themselves and express their ideas in different ways. But it's definitely a work in progress. Yeah, that's really interesting. Of course, you'll have so much interesting material in the wake of the hurricane disaster to be able to reinvigorate um, that, that conversation in your classroom. Yeah, absolutely. There's, um, I have a folder on my computer called Notes for Next Year. And <laughs> Everything I'm picking up as I travel around this year, all of the cool ideas I'm hearing, and then, of course, news stories that I'm coming across that are incredibly relevant to my teaching. So, Yeah. I, I also noticed in your application material that you lead a weekly all-school community circle, is what you call it, in an attempt to create what you refer to as a community of joy. What do you mean by community circle? What does a typical one look like? And how do you how do you keep that going to to continue the transformation of the culture in your school through that vehicle and and the context behind that question is it's sometimes easy to get those things off the ground and really hard to maintain them mhm mm so community circle also predates me i got to the school and community circle was a weekly all school sort of assembly um and it was very driven by adults so adults would get up and talk there would be adults who were guest speakers and the kids were not incredibly engaged in it. And so I asked my principal if I could take it over and sort of redesign it. And to his huge credit, he said, yes, absolutely. Um, and so what it looks like now or what it's looked like in the past few years is that there are students who are at the helm and they write, they come up with ideas for themes for the show and they write skits that um, sort of begin the show and they present, they present different things to the community. So sometimes they will run conversations um, on, you know, important issues to them. So a couple of years ago, the kids thought that bullying was an issue that they wanted to address. So they, they ran a whole school discussion on bullying. Um, we've had kids share poetry they've written. We've had kids perform songs. We've had... Um, uh, let's see. We have all sorts of things that we do in Community Circle, but it is really the idea is that it's driven by students and sort of their voices and what they're interested in and what they think is funny. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I mean, school school is an amazing place where amazing things happen. And it's also a really hard place because we are asking kids to come to school and take these big risks every day um, because the work of learning 
requires vulnerability. It requires being able to say, I don't know this thing, or I don't know this thing yet, or I need help. And that requires kids to really take a risk. And so I think we need to sometimes be really intentional as adults in a school about also building up this culture of joy where we can say, I know that you're doing really hard work um, and learning is fun and it's exciting and it also can be exhausting at times. So let's make sure that we come together as a community and we take time to celebrate all of the amazing things that are happening here and who we are as a community. Um, So we'll do little things too, like we'll shout out a scholar of the week and we'll say, here's this amazing thing that this kid did this week. And it could be anything from helping to tutor a classmate to um, doing this amazing extracurricular activity, but nobody knows about it and just like shining light on them in that way. Um, And then we'll do really goofy stuff too. We'll have competitions among students and among advisory groups, just sort of keeping the energy up. Um, So that's community circle. And in terms of your other question, I mean, I think that in some ways we're always looking for ways to be innovative in community circle. You know, what's a new idea or what's a new twist we could put on this thing that we do every week. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in other ways, I think the routine and the predictability is really nice. I mean, there are segments we call, you know, we call these little parts of the show segments. So there are segments that will happen every week that are super predictable that the kids really like. They really enjoy that sort of rhythm of knowing, okay, when this person gets up to talk, here's what sort of thing they're going to say to us. Uh, We had a staff member a few years ago who was a poet and he had a segment called Deep Thoughts, which is originally spawned as sort of, um, sort of like Jack Handy on SNL. You know that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we used to do these silly Jack Handy things and the kids were kind of like, well, that's weird. And then we had a staff member who started just actually doing really amazing, thought provoking, bite sized little pieces of poetry and spoken word. And the kids loved it. They absolutely loved it. So they knew as soon as he stood up, as soon as his theme music started playing, that they were going to get this little nugget of wisdom from him. And it gave them a lot of joy. So so when Community Circle is working really well, that's what it is. It's this place for us all to come together and just celebrate the fact that we are a community and there's really cool things happening at school. It, it sounds to me, as you're describing that, 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 that there's some intentionality in sort of um, breaking down some of the hierarchy that you traditionally find between teachers and students. Is that, is that a correct reading as I'm interpreting what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. And that's part of what we're doing at our school in general. So, you know, um, staff members go by first names with kids. Hmm. And my understanding is that way back in the beginning of the school, it was a really intentional choice to break down some of that hierarchy. Um, And I think central to our practice at the school and central to the practice of great schools that I'm seeing all across the country, I should say, is the idea of how important it is to really build relationships Mm -hmm. with kids um, and see one another as humans and connect on that level. Because when we're able to do that, again, we can get kids to really take these risks in the classroom because they know us and they know that we know them and that it's a safe place to do that. So I think community service is definitely a place to work on that relationship building and, um, yeah, and challenging some of the traditional 
power authority hierarchy relationships. Yeah, that I, I agree with. I mean, I have, I have not been able to see as many schools as I'm sure you have over the past year and, and the rest of your career. But I have to tell you, that's a consistent theme in really all the people that I've talked to on this podcast and the research that I've been involved in personally is that the relationship between the teacher and the student is really paramount to what the student is going to end up getting out of that. And importantly, what the teacher is going to end up getting out of it as well. Um, What are some things uh, before we leave this thought, because I think it's so important when you're in the classroom, what are some approaches that you use personally to help establish those relationships with students that become that productive mentoring uh, relationship of trust? That's a great question. So I think that there are a few things that come into play there, but I, I said a moment ago that we need to see each other and approach each other as humans. And what I mean by that is that my, is that my, is that my students have to feel like I am not just this sort of teacher who they walk into my room and they work with me for that hour, hour and a half, and then they leave and that's the only connection they have with me. So I try to get to know a little bit about who they are from the beginning. You know, just those little 30 second conversations as kids are coming in and getting their stuff ready. Um, And I try to let them know a little bit about who I am too. I try to share a bit about my life um, or where I'm coming from, little things like, they know that I have a daughter and they know her name or they know, um, you know, they'll ask me questions about my life and where I come from. And I try to just make sure that I'm honest with them about who I am. And I think that also really comes into play with the subject matter that I'm teaching. So, um, I am a white teacher of primarily students who are not white. My lived experience has been very different from theirs. So it's really important for, for me that, I'm open with them about who I am and what my life has been like and how that might look really different from theirs. And I think that that's a way too, that I can build uh, trust with them and build relationships with them where they can trust that I'm going to be honest with them about who I am and where I'm coming from. Um, Those are sort of the first things that come to mind is just making that space to connect with one another and learn a little bit about, about who we are. And then I think the other thing is just thinking about when a kid is having a bad day, the way that I approach them and the way that I choose to talk to them makes a huge difference in whether I'm going to be able to build the relationship through that interaction or whether I'm not. Um, So I will often tell a story when I'm out speaking of a time in my first year of teaching where I really hurt my relationship with a student because he was having a bad day and I didn't take the time to really listen to him and try to figure out what was going on. I went straight for discipline and I went straight for telling him that he absolutely had to do the thing I was telling him to do and that he was being disrespectful and all of that. Um, And I've learned in the years since that I'm going to get a lot farther with a kid in the long run if I approach them from a place of curiosity and from a place of saying, you know, it's clear to me that something is going on right now what is what's happening and how can I help you rather than just sort of trying to make them bend to my will. So those are the things that come to mind for me about relationships. Yeah. I mean, once again, connecting on a human level, yeah, that's just a great example. So as I was reading through your application packet, there were a couple other terms that I highlighted that I just thought were really interesting. So I'm going to say a term and I just want you to sort of give your narrative about what that term means to you in terms of teaching. So the first term is authentic. I come from a school that's part of the EL education network. EL uh, used to be called expeditionary learning. And it is kind of this project-based approach where 
we're asking kids to dig deep into content and we're asking them to build skills and we're asking them to take these academic risks that I've mentioned a few times. Um, but we're asking them to do that in a way that is authentic. We're asking them to look at real problems in the world. We're asking them to do sort of real research or scholarship. Um, it's not, it's not just sort of worksheets, it's real thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's, I think when we do that, we get really high quality work from kids. We get them to do really deep thinking um, and we get them to see how the work that they're doing in school matters and how it connects to the real world. So one example I can give you is that our seniors, um, they were doing work looking at policing in America and they were, they were thinking about um, the Black Lives Matter movement, and they were thinking about Ferguson, Missouri, and they were reading the, um, you know, the Department of Justice report on Ferguson, and they were reading a book um, called The New Jim Crow, and they were doing really, really difficult work, um, and they were incredibly engaged in that work and engaged in the skill building, and it was because it felt really authentic. It felt like it was an issue that was real and that was current and that mattered and that they actually could have a voice on. That's really interesting because, of course, you, you said that um, when you do these types of things with your students that you're really trying to connect with them as individuals, but yet you came from, a, admittedly, a, a different background than them. How do, you, how do you balance the fact that you came from one background, your students came from another, and that you're trying to find this authentic space in the middle? Yeah, absolutely. So I think when I'm able to say to my kids... I never learned about this thing, or when I'm able to say to them, I never experienced this thing, I think that's actually really helpful and really good modeling because it tells them a couple of things. It tells them one, um, that they have expertise in things that I don't, and that I am learning just as much as they are. And that even though I'm a teacher, I'm a lifelong learner. And I see that as important and I value that. Mm -hmm. And it tells them it's okay not to know things. And I think both of those things are really, really important for our kids to see. Um, and so for me, it's about, I need to constantly try to educate myself. So I need to always be reading and talking and thinking about race, for example, um, because it is, you know, race comes up so often in the class that I'm teaching and in just my context, you know, it's just such a huge, it's a huge part of my identity and a huge part of my identity as a teacher, um, especially given my context, that it would be a disservice to my kids to not be mm -hmm. continuously working on that and doing that work myself. Um, and so I think it's just, you know, teachers have to be willing to accept the fact and be open about the fact that we don't know everything and that we are always learning and that our students have things to teach us. Um, yeah, so that's sort of where I try to come from with that. I really appreciate that answer because when I talk with other teachers about trying to deal with, you know, admittedly really hard topics like race and class uh, and, and, and drug addiction and things like that in a classroom where they they're almost fearful of talking about it because they don't have that lived experience. And I really like the way that you narrate how that's a part of the teaching and learning experience for everyone. So I, I really appreciate your answer. The, the second term I wanted you to talk about is culturally relevant. Yeah. So, I mean, I think we've hit on this a little bit, but it's just this notion of as a white teacher, there are things that I need to be 
really explicit with myself about, and there are things that I really need to interrogate. So uh, I'm thinking specifically about, you know, growing up as a white middle-class student in a predominantly white middle-class school, what are the ways that I understood my relationships with teachers to be, or how did I understand, um, how did I understand the ways that adults and students talk to one another? Um, there's, there's, you know, an article by Lisa Delpit, um, where she really sort of spells this out. And she talks about when you have a white middle-class authority figure and they want a child to do something, often they'll phrase that, for example, in the form of a question. So the example she gives is that there was a, I think a mother talking to her child or something. And she said, um, don't you think it's time for a bath? Something like that. And what the mother really meant, if you translated it from mom into whatever, is uh, it's time for a bath, go take a bath, right? But instead she phrased it as a question. And she said, you know, then she was talking to a black mother or, or listening in or something. And, and that mother said something to her child like, go get your rusty butt in that bathroom or in that bathtub, right? And so she says, look, these are two mothers who are actually saying the exact same thing, but they're saying it in two different ways. And if we believe one way to be better than the other, or if we believe one way to be the only way that we can say a thing, then when we're teaching in a context that's different from the one we grew up in, we're going to constantly be miscommunicating. So I read that really early. I think I read that in grad school and I was sort of blown away by it, by the idea that there are just these sort of different ways of communicating. And if, if I, as a white teacher, I'm going to go into a context where I'm working primarily with students who are not white and haven't grown up in the same, like in the same culture that way that I have, um, there's some real work that I have to do to think about the modes in which I communicate, um, and the modes in which I might be understood or translated that are different from for when I intended. So the, the last term that I wanted you to uh, talk about, because you've already talked about the term joy, which was also one of the ones that I highlighted, but you also mentioned the importance of interdisciplinarity uh, in your teaching. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I see that as going along with um, authenticity. So I teach humanities. So it's history and English combined in one class. And I really love that because I think learning how to read and write by reading and writing about history and learning history by reading and writing about it is really rich. That's a really rich way to teach and to learn. And it's really authentic too, because as adults, when we're going to learn something new, we usually don't learn it just through the lens of one discipline. We usually sort of dabble. We're like, oh, that news article about that hurricane is really interesting. I have some questions about what it means to be a category four versus a category five. Oh, and now I have some questions about the population of the place that was impacted. And so I'm going to look at some statistics about that. And now I'm going to read this first person narrative of it. And that's going to require me to do some different skills. So we learn in a really interdisciplinary way when we guide our own learning, I think. Um, and so teaching in that way, I think it's really helpful for kids in showing them that generally in the world, our brains don't operate in this siloed manner where it's just what it's just math or it's just history. We learn in a way where things sort of breed together to develop this big full understanding. So I'm really interested in ways of teaching that can do that for kids that can help highlight the interconnectedness of these different disciplines and help them see that and draw on it in their learning. 
Yeah, you know, I that's such a great way of describing it. And I, I've heard um, some of my colleagues say before that things that are important do not allow myopic viewpoints. And I think that's what I hear you saying is that if you're trying to tackle some of these more meaty issues, you really have to come at it from different perspectives. I, I think as a segue, let's turn to thinking about, you know, your designation as the National Teacher of the Year, uh, particularly somebody that comes at their pedagogy with a strong lens of social justice. If there are other teachers out there that hear your message and, and have heard the messages of others and want to integrate social justice into their classrooms but have not done so yet, what's the best advice you could give them? Um, twofold. One, it goes back to the thing I said before about just being willing to educate yourself and just being willing to figure out what's the book I'm going to read to sort of start thinking about this thing. Because if you're going to think about incorporating social justice work into your classroom, you've got to also think about your own identity and how that comes into play in your classroom. And the second is every, every big change, every exciting thing that we're going to do in our classrooms, it starts with one small step. So to not be overwhelmed by feeling like, oh man, I really want to do this thing, but how am I ever going to get started? How will I ever figure out how to make this happen? But just thinking about here's the one little thing that I'm going to try. I'm going to bring in this one article that's current events that relates to the thing that we're learning in class. And we're going to just start with that. Or I'm going to just start by teaching my kids how to have, um, how to have a discussion that's respectful and based on evidence. And we're going to go from that skill into having discussions about um, topics that are related to social justice that are difficult to have. Um, there are all kinds of resources online that are free and readily available to teachers from, you know, one little lesson to a whole unit around social justice themes. Um, so I think it's also important for teachers to remember, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You don't have to be an expert in this stuff to try it. You just have to sort of be willing to say, here's something that I value, that I think is important for kids. And I'm going to start the process of educating myself and learning as I go. Very good. Sydney, you've been the National Teacher of the Year for, I think, not quite a year now, if, if, if my um, timeline is correct. How do you think that this award and the experiences that you've had uh, serving as the National Teacher of the Year um, either has or will change you as a teacher? Yeah, so it's a good question. The first thing I think about is how my understanding of my work inside the classroom has changed as a result of this journey that I'm on. I have a much broader understanding of the landscape of education in our country uh, before I was in my classroom, I understood what happened in my classroom really well. I understood what happened at my school level really well. And everything beyond that was pretty murky. I didn't really get the, the big context in which I did my work. And now I feel like I have a much better understanding of who the different players are in education and who some of the stakeholders are and policymakers. And I'm not exactly sure yet how that's going to impact my day-to-day -day teaching. But it definitely will impact my understanding of my agency as a teacher and as an educator um, and my ability to communicate with other people in that educational landscape about what's happening in my room in a way that can perhaps influence policy decisions, for example. And then the other thing I think about is just really 
you know, really small and specific, I'm seeing really awesome things as I go around to different schools and different classrooms, and I'm filing them away in that little folder I have called notes for next year. So um, one specific thing, I saw this really cool school in Tacoma, Washington, which I've done a lot of writing about so far, but um, they had this exercise bike with a desk on top that I saw a kid just, you know, (laughs) wheeling away and doing his work. And I was just thinking, man, I need to get one of those in my room. That's really cool. Um, or, you know, I was talking to a teacher from elsewhere in Massachusetts recently, and he said, oh, here's this, you know, I like to do this activity with my kids. And I thought, well, that's a really cool activity that I've never heard of. I'm going to take that. So um, selfishly, I'm picking up a whole bunch of cool tips and tricks and methods that I'm going to bring back to my room. Well, I'm sure your your students will also benefit from that holistic perspective. I'm sure that they will start to develop a more holistic perspective as well because of getting to hear about some of your experiences. So I'm sure that'll be exciting for them. I, the, the question I wanted to end with, I, I was really struck in the story that you told in the audio clip that we played at the beginning of this episode that came um, from um, the Council of Chief State School Officials, um, where you talked about your epiphany about teaching and you you essentially addressed the question that was posed to you in Ethiopia about what is the purpose of learning. And, and you came to an answer to that that I thought was just extremely eloquent. I guess my question, not that I can rise to the same level of eloquence, but what do you think, given the way you answered that question about the purpose of, of learning, what do you think the purpose of teaching is? Well, if I if I sort of go along with what I came up with for what is the purpose of learning, then I could just say, well, the purpose of teaching is to facilitate connection, um, which I think is true. I think one thing that I've been thinking about as I've been asked to articulate this idea of social justice in the classroom is that in some ways the purpose of teaching is to help empower young people to to change the world. And I think helping them make connections will do that. Um, But I've been thinking a ton about really great and transformative teaching is just that. It helps students transform into the kinds of young people who really see themselves as agents of change and who are equipped with tools and skills to enact those changes or to catalyze those changes. So I think education, and I know there are a lot of people who disagree with me on this, but I I think that there's a bigger purpose to education beyond just teaching our content. I think it's about really teaching people to change the world. Well, I, I don't disagree with you about that. So I, I, I fully buy into um, what you just said and, and hope that other teachers will as well. I think that if we don't view that as being the role of educators, we're doing ourselves a disservice and, and certainly a disservice to our students. Um, so I, I hope that others will carry the flag with you on, on, that, on that advocacy. Hey, Sydney, I want to just congratulate you on the award that you received uh, based upon everything that I've read and certainly what I've heard today. It's extremely well-deserved, and I hope that you have a great time finishing out um, the travels and the other activities that you have to do as the National Teacher of the Year and wish you the best of luck as you transition back into the classroom, and thanks for being on the program. Thank you so much. My guest today was Sydney Chafee, the 2017 Massachusetts Teacher of the Year and the 2017 National Teacher of the Year. The text accompanying the podcast provides links describing the Teacher of the Year program and also to the official page announcing Sydney's award. 
Thank you for listening to Teaching Matters produced by WOUB Public Media. You can always listen at WOUB.org slash listen. We're also available through several popular podcasting apps, including Google Play, iTunes, and NPR One. You can contact the staff of the podcast with ideas, questions, or comments through our Facebook page. Simply go to Facebook and search for Teaching Matters Podcast. Our audio engineer today is Adam Rich, and um, uh, our production assistant is Katie Johnson. I'm Scott Titsworth, your host. Thank you for listening, and have a great day. Thank you.